Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss workplace wellness programs. With me to discuss the topic is Ms. Helen Darling, the president of the National Business Group on Health. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. As always, uh, before we begin, let me begin with some uh, background or context. Workplace wellness programs are yet another are yet another a way of extending healthcare, in this case, uh, to the workplace or to improve population health. Workplace wellness and their variant health contingent wellness programs have become pervasive amongst employers offering employee health care insurance. These programs are considered a win-win strategy that improves employees' health and an employer's bottom line by increasing productivity, reducing absenteeism, and preventing disability claims and work-related injuries. As a result, wellness programming has grown to be a $6 billion industry with 500 vendors. HIPAA, signed into law in 1996, encouraged employees to institute wellness programming by allowing them to discount the total cost of an employer and employee's health benefit costs by as much as 20%. The ACA extended this provision by allowing employers beginning next year, 2014, to increase the annual discount to 30% and potentially an added 20% to a maximum of 50% if the addition is due to tobacco prevention or use reduction. Despite considerable enthusiasm for workplace wellness, the programming is not without controversy. There is debate whether wellness programs actually produce beneficial health effects or worse or counterproductive, and whether these programs de facto shift healthcare costs to those considered less healthy employees. So with that as background, uh, let me begin, uh, Helen, by asking you um, briefly describe or can you briefly define uh, workplace wellness programs or what do they try to accomplish um, and what's their rationale? Well, there's not a simple or single answer. So every employer, for the most part of any size now, has some kind of workplace wellness program. In fact, most of them have had them for many, many years. You could think about safety programs in the past, which actually still exist, but the, even at a place that only had safety programs, that was really about workforce wellness. Uh, so what we've seen is a growth over, especially in the most recent years, as there's been really at least two things going on. First of all, a growing um, epidemic or crisis of obesity. So we have, unfortunately, less and less healthy employees and family members because of that. But also growing recognition that if, if employees and their families are going to get help, the employers need to do something to make that happen. Uh, in addition, I think most employers have come to realize that they do have the employees in the workplace, or at least connected with the workplace in one way or another, for a good eight-plus hours a day, five days a week. So they have a lot of opportunities for teachable moments or for um, programs or health centers and things like that that will, will get people's attention, give them something that they may need, like flu shots. I just got mine before I came over here today. I mean, I didn't have to go anyplace before I got them in airports because that was where I was. Now we bring them into the office. So, you know, things like that. There's a recognition that as hard as most people work in this country, the more you can help them in the workplace in one way or another, the better off they're going to be and that you're going to be. Okay. Let me ask you then, how are these programs typically funded? Well, they're usually funded out of the 
same thing that everything's funded out of, the revenues of the company, or in the case of the public sector, the taxpayers. Okay. Uh, as I noted in my uh, intro, uh, there's significant debate about whether the programs work or are effective. Uh, numerous studies. Uh, let me note most um, recently, however, is the RAND report was out in May, and this was actually mandated by the Affordable Care Act, and what the RAND report did was try to attempt to summarize uh, all the studies that have been done or conducted to date. Uh, what's your sense, though, RAND, whether regarding the RAND report specifically or just generally, what's your sense about the research on these programs? Well, a couple of things. Um, first, the workplace wellness programs of the kind we're talking about today are still pretty new. I mean, they haven't been around long enough, even if there were academicians who would study them to to have you know really um, solid results. And that's part of the problem, right? That's part of the problem. Um, second, no one who's in an employer situation is going to want to set it up in a way that you could actually do the kind of research that everybody say, oh, well, this is the definitive statement. First of all, when you put in programs and you see some piece of it isn't working, you want to change it. You don't want to sit there and three years later keep doing the wrong thing uh, so that you can have a perfect study. Um, you, they're not designed. They're frequently, no one's forced to go into them. They're put out there as an opportunity. So the researchers would trash that and say, oh, well, you know, this was a convenient sample. It's not good enough. Right, excellent. You it's self-selected. Yeah, you didn't control for this. You didn't, well, of course, you can't control. You know, if it's going to be a real rigorous study, it probably isn't going to happen in a, a workplace, okay. except maybe the federal government, where they, they, they have to do it the right way. CDC could do it, uh, and they could make all of their employees do what they would make a legitimate study, and then they wouldn't complain about other people's studies, maybe. Well, that's very helpful. Let me ask you, though, then sort of the flip side of the question, which is uh, considering your substantive understanding of the programming, how do you think it would be improved? Um, well, uh, that's a good question. I would say it's really worthwhile for people to catalog or create the equivalent to registries of what everybody has done and tried at different points in time. So you would have an accumulation of knowledge. And then where you can, and you could actually design a special study to answer certain questions, you could do that. So you kind of combine those two things together, and then every time you, uh, let's say another company came along and said, you know, the GE program I thought was really great. They really did something about smoking. It looked really neat. So I'm another company, but I'm... I've read these results, and I want to have a program that looks a little bit like that, but a little bit like somebody else's, and put that together, and then track the results. So the question really is, are you tracking information? Are you gathering information? Are you looking at results in terms of your own data warehouse data? Or are you doing a rigorous study? No matter what you do, if you do it the way it's going to happen in the real world, it won't produce the kind of study that researchers would like to have. Okay. And uh, the RAND report actually made the recommendation that employers be more vigorous in conducting continuous quality improvement or mm -hmm. doing evaluation work. Right, right. Let me ask you one, um, this is specific to financial incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a National Business Group on Health survey that looked at how much money. Right. And I read it was, the average was $521. And mm -hmm. these are annual right, financial right. incentives. Um, what's your sense of how effective 
And there is, of course, the question is, what is the right amount of money? Um, well, in a way, there's no right amount of money. It varies so much by culture, company, uh, the, the workforce. Uh, for example, I know of a company that's in financial services that they said that they, no, no amount of money changes anything, you know, because... So, so well yeah, paid. Right? Yeah. Um, with the other thing we know from behavioral economics is that giving a reward of some sort may produce some small change, but creating a loss aversion, using building a loss aversion theory, mm. uh, creating a sense of a loss is much more powerful, three times as strong. So, for example, and we've seen employers knowing that, hearing that message, that they will give the employees on January 1 money into an account. So you get $100, $200, $300 into your account. And then if after the first four months of the year you have not done what you have to do for that money, like take a health assessment, call a nutritionist or a nurse or something like that, the money is taken away from you. You have to pay it back. So um, that, that's a very powerful motivator, apparently. Okay. Let me ask specific to National Business Group on Health. Could you name... Uh, maybe not name the program, but could you describe programs that you think have been effective? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can. All right, so the particular, the one that gets the most, of course, because of how harmful it is, are programs that attempt to um, reduce tobacco consumption or right. smoking cessation. Right. So in that specific subtopical area, are there programs that you think have been effective? And how they've been affected. Yeah. Well, the the one that's written up and is talked about the most is the GE program, which was published, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, where actually paid, people were paid, and they were paid in three different ways. So it was a it was a very smart study. You know, it tried to be a real study, uh, and that in itself is unusual. Um, you know, our view is that, in a way, just doing some of these things has benefits that really are not easy to count but are definitely there. So, for example, if you have a culture of health and if everybody from the most senior level down is constantly thinking about, talking about, being a role model for things to do with healthful living in the workplace, um, at least two things happen. One, that will influence people for the most part. And they'll notice it, and they'll they'll maybe in modest ways uh, benefit from it. But the other thing is, it sends the message that they actually care about their employees and family members. So there's a lot of goodwill that mm -hmm. relates to that. You know, especially if the if the company itself, the organization itself, does a lot. So, for example, in the cafe and the in the in say a building. They make certain that there really are really helpful choices. They label them. You know, they work on the catering. They work on vending machines. They do all this sort of stuff. And they're making it attractive. I mean, you can have great food that's really good mm -hmm. for you. Um, and it's sending the message that we, we want you, because of your health and productivity is important to us. We care about you. So those are the kinds of programs, it seems to me, that are really win-win for everybody. So this is sort of a de facto Hawthorne effect. If you express yes. concern just by asking the question or showing the concern, there's right. a benefit. And giving. And give, you're giving stuff. I mean, think about the difference in going into a, a, a cafe every day, like in this building, 
and you have fantastic food, all mm. of which is delicious and attractive, and it's also helpful. And it's labeled so you know that there's you know not hidden things in there. And if you know, for example, that the company is encouraging you to have a walking meeting around the campus. We have, you know, in Bethesda area, Rockville area, you know, there are a lot of buildings out there where people are in cubicles all day. Mm -hmm. But they they have a park-like setting. If they set up walking paths and then, you know, senior people say, oh, I see these two people are out there having a walking meeting. That's great. I'm really glad to see that. So they're, you know, they're really, there's a lot of kind of rah-rah goodness about some of these things. That frankly, if... If otherwise the company is a good place to work, I mean, those things don't make up for a, a culture or a, a setting where people don't feel valued. But if they feel valued and you have all these other things going on, it can be pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, though, then about the criticisms or those people who are the skeptics. Mm -hmm. So there are people who say that what you get in effect, unintended or not, is really a shift uh, particularly from, say, higher paid, and you mentioned the financial services uh, industry by way of sort of related example, but it's a shift potentially of healthcare costs to uh, lower wage workers because lower wage workers tend to be, because they're lower socioeconomic status, less healthy. So how, how do you think about or how do you respond to the concern that whether it's intended or not again, that what you get in effect is, and some people say further, really just de facto reinstitutes medical underwriting, even though, of course, the Affordable Care Act ostensibly outlawed that. Well, our employees don't do medical underwriting anyway. Right, right. So, um, well, you know, I don't, I, I, to be honest, I don't get this attitude. First of all, if the people who have health problems need help, they're the ones that are suffering because of the problems with their health or their, you know, physical condition. So they should be most pleased and most helped by, I, you know, I hate to keep saying myself, but I, I, that's the one thing I know. It, I don't need for somebody to tell me about certain things. Things I was brought up because my parents taught me for, for my entire life to do certain things. But if I hadn't, and I've got, I work in a place that's giving me information, that's paying a lot of money for me to have a coach, and a nutritionist, and to provide me with health benefits so I can get myself regularly screened, get cholesterol, high blood pressure. I've got a company that's given me an on-site health center and a fitness center and all these other things. I can take advantage of some of those, maybe not all of those, not everybody can, but I, you know, somehow I don't see that the, the way to think about that is, well, low-income people have more health problems and so we shouldn't be doing anything about wellness. I mean, you want to say, really? Is that really what you think? Well, the, to put it more pointedly, so that the, the concern is that they possibly may be less able to say to qualify for the health contingent wellness incentives. No, that's not true. I mean, it, these all of these incentives are those that the individual can do. If they can't do them for one reason or another, they're not in there on the list of things they have to do. They just aren't. Most of these are very, truly very individualized. In fact, the coaches, nutritionists, people who work on this, first of all, these are people who love their jobs and they want people to make choices that mm -hmm. are good for them. They want to help them. They're there to help them. So they're going to do everything they can to figure out, all right, what is it can you do? If, if normally you go home, 
exhausted at the end of the day, which I think a lot of people are, and you plop in front of the TV and you eat, you know, you order pizza in, you've got somebody who's going to say, how would it be, could you think about and try to things like, would it be possible for when you get home to maybe have already, because on the weekend or sometime when you have the time, you bought some things that are ready, ready to eat, that are healthy, they're there, they require no work, and you sit down with your kids and you talk to them, or you get, you know, I mean, they just does, so that's, the, their job is to find the ways. They're going to learn more and benefit more than people who are not, who are already healthy. They're yeah. not getting any new information. These are the people who are going to get the new information and be helped. And the coaches and nutritionists and others are going to spend more time with them because they're the people who need help. Okay, okay. Let me just ask you, and I do have one final, but before we get to that, um, so again, the administration in May came out with the final rule uh, instructing um, employees how to implement right. the ACA provision. Do you have comment about, are you satisfied with how uh, the final rule was drafted? Are there any concerns that you have? Or, and or, what do you think, the since the discount's been raised from 20 to 30, potentially 50%, as I yeah. noted. What participation do you expect now that the... Well, first of all, there's, you know, they, no one was meeting the 20% before. I mean, basically 20%, most employers, what they were providing in either a penalty or a reward was not the full 20%. So when, they, when the law made it 30%, we said, fine, that gives the few that go beyond 20% some flexibility. We always like flexibility. So um, we were happy with that. Um, when the department came out with the 50% on uh, tobacco only, I thought that was inspired. Now, again, I don't think most people will go near that amount. But the, the concept, the idea that tobacco use itself is so serious, they're going to kind of pull that out and give them a little more incentive. And also to realize that to, you know use of tobacco really does make costs significantly higher. No, no argument about that. It seemed to me that this was really a very smart response. But for the most part, employers aren't going to hit the 30%. But flexibility is good. So, you know, leave them alone. They, they're the ones who develop these programs. They're the ones that are making a difference for people. So it's nice in this instance for the department to not make their lives more difficult. So that's a stretch goal. At that, at that percent. Well, you don't even need to do it. I mean, they, they don't necessarily want it. It's not even a goal. We don't, we don't, you don't have to do it. Sure. It's just, yeah. Sure. Let me just ask this last question. We have time for it, and that is, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a thousand times, but I have to, and it's certainly related, and that is this issue of will employers drop coverage? This has been greatly debated over the last three years. Um, for example, in my last interview of Len Nichols, he didn't think that would be the case. A lot of research seems to support that. Yeah. What's your sense, or what do you hear amongst your members as we move into 2014? Right. So um, our members are not going to not provide health coverage to their employees in one form or another. Um, it is still, in the United States, a competitive benefit that um, in order to recruit and retain talent, you have to be able to offer health benefits. Uh, a question of how rich, because historically it was always this idea that 
employees wanted everything, so the companies that could afford to do it would give them more and more. And as costs went up, they'd continue to cover those costs. So I think what we are seeing is a movement, and it's general, it's not just, it's in the public sector too, um, moving away from a so-called defined benefit plan. So you sort of, no matter what happens, we're going to cover all your health care needs. To you, you're going to have choices, and you're going to be given some amount of money. A defined contribution. A defined contribution. It may, it won't be a flat one. It may, it may be that each year it goes up three or four percent, but it's not going to be no matter what the cost. We're going to cover it. Unlimited. Unlimited. And um, we also will see, I think, a lot more. We're already seeing it. In, talk about the exchanges, the public exchanges, then the private exchanges, and the Massachusetts Connector. We're already seeing people being given choices and the differential in what they have to pay out of pocket is enough that they're choosing, they're buying down when they have a choice. So when it's up to them, they actually don't want to pay all this extra money. So historically, you know, we've given people lower wages compared to increased health benefit costs. We're moving to an era in which there'll be more balance and people will be given higher pay increases not as high for health benefits costs, and then they can decide, do they want to buy more health benefits with their cash wages, or do they want more life insurance or disability insurance, but it's kind of all their money, wages, benefits, and health benefits, and how do they want to spend their money, or as the economists say, their foregone wages. Okay, thank you, Helen. With that, we're at our time boundary, so let me say thank you again. You're welcome.